The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. We start today with one of the most famous opening passages in all of literature. Lolita, light of my life, fire of my loins, my sin, my soul. Lolita, the tip of the tongue taking a trip of three steps down the palate to tap at three on the teeth. Lolita. She was low, plain low, in the morning, standing four feet ten in one sock. She was Lola in slacks. She was Dolly at school. She was Dolores on the dotted line. But in my arms, she was always Lolita. Bam. Already, we are in a world of a disturbed narrative mind. Maybe we know from the cover or from our cultural awareness what this book is about. A grown man lusting for a young girl, even if we're coming to it with nothing. The paragraph doesn't hesitate. We suspect this is an adult. And from the clues, the textual clues, Lola in slacks, Dolly at school, four feet ten in one sock, this sounds like a girl. The narrator sounds like a man, an adult, a grown-up. He has narrative gifts and reverence toward his subject that seem mature. The author himself, Vladimir Nabokov, is one of the great prose stylists of the 20th century, really all of literature. His expertise in English as well as his other native tongue, Russian, and he has given his narrator, Humbert Humbert, these linguistic gifts as well. We don't expect 12-year-old boys to be able to write prose like this. Breaking a word down into syllables and saying that the tip of the tongue takes a trip of three steps down the palate to tap at three on the teeth. Listen to that sentence. It's like Shakespeare. The sentence itself is doing exactly what the narrator wants it to do. The sound of it is magical. The tip of the tongue taking a trip of three steps. Tap at three on the teeth. This is a world where everything is invested with beauty, where everyone and everything in sight is supercharged with energy, vibrant energy, where details quiver, where prose itself is as charged as a glorious sunset or a ball of lightning firing across the night sky. Lolita, Lolita with hyphens and Lolita. Ta as three sentences, every way to say it all there in the first two lines. And the first sentence gives us the novel in embryo. Lolita, light of my life, fire of my loins. This is a man who loves Lolita, but more than that, he lusts for her too. That's what the fire of his loins tells us. But we also hear that she is the light of his life. And then we hear that she's called Dolly at school, and she's four feet ten in one sock, and in his arms, where he wants to protect her. There she's Lolita. It's incredibly disturbing. We know this as child abuse. We know it as statutory rape. What do we have it here in the first paragraph? Where is this taking us? We're invited to see it as something else. Sadness, maybe, 
along with some good qualities. The narrator wants to protect her. He wants to feel love for her. He wants to revere her. And more than that, he wants to love life. We see that in the writing itself. He writes in a way that seems like we, that makes us feel like we should be doing a better job of living. We should notice more and feel more and expand more. And we as readers have to reckon with this. How do these very human impulses, these positive qualities, the desire to feel love and the desire to protect, what do we do with those qualities when we are dealing with a moral monster? How do they make us feel? Is this manipulation? Are we being pushed somewhere by the artist? And we are we responding to this in the right way, if we can even locate for ourselves what that means? What is the right way to read a book like Lolita? The answer is impossible. Of course, I'm not going to prescribe a single way to read or think about Lolita. It's a work of art. And that means condemnation as well as praise. It means celebration as well as shunning. It means it fights for its place in our hearts and minds as much as any other work. It's a book that almost wasn't published and yet is, as our guest today puts it, an indelible part of the literary landscape. Indelible. Shocking and indelible. Words as carefully chosen as if Nabokov himself had done the selecting. We'll talk to our guest, Jenny Minton Quigley, about the new book, Lolita in the Afterlife, on beauty, risk, and reckoning with the most indelible and shocking novel of the 20th century, today on The History of Literature. Okay, hello everyone. Here we go. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. Lolita. Sometimes the show, well, I like all the shows that we do here and all the topics and all the authors we cover and all the guests. If I didn't, I wouldn't have them on the list of shows we're going to do. There's just too many excellent works of literature out there. But sometimes one comes along and just stands there shining like a a gold book, a golden book in the desert, right? Lolita is a book like that. It gleams and shimmers. You might have seen the pictures of the manuscript of Lolita, which was written on note cards. It's the preferred method of a serious prose stylist. Compare this method with Jack Kerouac's, for example, who ran a huge roll of typing paper through his typewriter for On the Road, because he didn't want to have to stop to pull the pages out of his typewriter. He didn't want to go sheet by sheet by sheet. He didn't want the feeling that when he reached the bottom of the page, he would stop, an arbitrary stop imposed on him by the format of the pages. He didn't want to have to stop and pull the page out of the typewriter and insert a new one and resume typing. He didn't want built-in breaks. He wanted his story to unfurl and not be blocked out, page by page by page. Nabokov went in the opposite direction. Where Kerouac went searching for the universe, Nabokov sought the power of the atom. 
He went into the story at the sentence level. He wanted to break it down. He wanted to focus on the page, and not just the page, but the sentence, and not just the sentence, but the single word. And when I say he wanted to focus, I mean he wanted his own focus to be on the word. Kerouac didn't want sheet by sheet by sheet. Nabokov wanted more than just a sheet. He wanted (laughs) card by card, sentence by sentence. Slow down, Vladimir. That's what he was telling himself. Slow down. Focus on the sentence. Perfect it. Perfect the sentence. It's why Nabokov is often thought of as a writer's writer, a favorite of prose stylists like John Updike and Martin Amos, the kinds of writers good enough at their art to recognize mastery. Lolita is mastery. It's a tour de force. And at the same time that it exemplifies art, And what prose can do, it calls it into question as well. We have to face tough questions as a society, questions with real-life consequences. We don't give art a free pass because it's good at what it does. When we read, we don't have to sit by passively and accept whatever the author sets before us. We can push back. We can resist. We can ignore, too, if we want. We are free to treat Lolita the book in any way we choose. I am free, and so are you. We can put it on an altar and worship it. We can ignore it altogether, leave it on the shelf. Don't buy it. Buy it. Buy 10 copies and give them to all your friends. Or don't buy it at all. We can criticize it for being inconsistent or hypocritical or immoral or distasteful or for the sneaking suspicion that it glorifies something we don't want glorified or that it reveals something we'd rather not have revealed or it titillates or tries to titillate when it should not be doing that. We are not always on the same page as our narrator, Humbert Humbert, and that's fair, but what if we feel that we're not on the same page as the author, Nabokov, either? What if the great novel of the 20th century is not for us? What if it has nothing to say, or nothing to say that we need or want to hear? Now, before you start writing me emails... I'm not saying that that is my view. I'm saying it's a view, a valid one, and so is the opposite. Think of this like religion. Let's say you really wanted to know what a religion was like. You're coming to it cold. You want to know what the religion is like. Maybe you're interested. Maybe you're curious. Is there one book that you would read? One essay? Or would you be better off hearing from a group of people? People at all ends of the spectrum. You might be agnostic yourself about this religion, and you might like to read a book by an agnostic. That sensibility would work for you, and you could learn from it. But wouldn't you also want to know what an atheist thought? And a true believer. You'd want to know what that experience was like too, right? If you truly wanted to know all about a religion, you'd want to hear from people who grew up with that religion and rejected it, who came to it late in life and fell in wholeheartedly, who believe, who don't believe, who have found it to give their life meaning, who have rejected it as superstition, who have studied it historically, who have studied it theologically, who are within a different religious tradition but who admire aspects of this one, 
and so on. It's hard to imagine one book from one perspective being as good as one book with 30 perspectives. How about a priest? How about a sinner? How about a man? How about a woman? How about someone old? How about someone young? All of these perspectives are valid and crucial. That's what we're going for here with our show today and our book. More the book, really. This is here to this episode is going to preview this book for you. Lolita is going to give you some of the backstory of the book, some of the goals we're talking to the editor. Lolita is our sacred object. We use the analogy of a religion, but even sacred objects deserve close-up examination to see what's good and what's not so good, what's to our taste and what isn't. But there's more to it than just that. We're not just interested in the sacred object being examined. We're interested in the experience of those who have come to examine. How did they approach this thing? And what effect did it produce in them? That's what this book is for. That's who this book is for. For us. I'm going to take a quick break here and then come back with some more of our introduction to Lolita. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. This book. It's a lot of things. This book is a detective story. It's a chase. It's a romance. It's a road novel. Kerouac is a great comparison. In so many ways. Compare and contrast. The papers write themselves. And of course, both books were from the 1950s. On the Road and Lolita, both were the product of the Eisenhower era, the era of interstate highways being built, the post-war world where conformity was king in America, but also resistance to conformity. They were being written at the same time. On the Road was written mostly in 1951, and published in 1957, after going through some revisions, Lolita was started in 1948 and finished in 1953 and was rejected by a bunch of New York publishers before finally being published in France in 1955. 5,000 copies were printed full of typographical errors, and it sold out almost immediately. And Graham Greene got a hold of a copy and reviewed it in the London newspapers and said it was one of the three best books of 1955. God bless Graham Greene, one of our favorites here at the History of Literature. He himself was having a pretty good decade. The Third Man came out 
1949, which might be my favorite movie of all time, and The End of the Affair came out in 1951, and that might be my favorite novel of all time. Wow. <laughs> Quite close together. The Quiet American, another Graham Greene great novel, was published in 1955, which was the same year as his review of Lolita, and Our Man in Havana was published in 1958. So this is a great period for literature, these 1950s. Okay, anyway, Graham Greene loved Lolita. He thought it was important. But when he wrote the review, after he wrote the review, a rival newspaper felt compelled to respond with an attack on the book, with the editor calling it, quote, the filthiest book I have ever read. Straight-out pornography, they said. The book was banned in the U.K. for the next couple of years, and nobody in America wanted to publish it either. Until one of today's heroes entered the scene, a man at G.P. Putnam's Sons, the publishing house that had been owned by his father. He published the book in August 1958, and it sold 100,000 copies in three weeks. That was rare. Gone with the wind territory for Lolita. The man who made that possible, Walter J. Minton, was proven correct. He could sell this book. The authorities might not have wanted people to read it, but readers thought otherwise. And at least some of them were probably surprised by what they got. Maybe they were expecting straight pornography, something down in the gutter. Lowbrow. Instead, they got high art. This wasn't a film you watch in the back of a store in the flickering darkness. It was nude in the way that Michelangelo's works are have nudes, proud and brazen. The obvious work of an artist, and yet transgressive all the same. Shocking. It still is. It's still shocking. It's still taboo. It probably always will be. I Hope that it will be, and so should you. The subject matter is abhorrent, and yet, with Lolita, there is always an and yet. So, we were with Walter J. Minton, who died in November of 2019, not long ago. He was 96 years old when he passed away, and every obituary says the same thing. Let me just back up for a moment and say that this is a guy who... Walter J. Minton, who was in publishing for decades, who published The Godfather, who made friends and enemies, who lived a kind of larger-than-life existence for a long time. And every obituary says the same thing. The man who published Lolita. The man who brought Lolita to America. The risk-taker. The defier of censors. The man who published Lolita. Sixty years had gone by since the publication of Lolita, and it was still... The sentence that needed no further explanation. No one needed to say, well, there was this book called Lolita. It was famous in its day. It was controversial. No. Lolita is a one-word cultural avatar. A man has died. He was the publisher of Lolita. So... Here we are now, a few years later. Lolita is as scandalous as ever, and maybe more so, or at least scandalous in a different way. We do not look kindly on the Humbert Humberts of the world, and thank God for that. There are no boys will be boys here. Not today. Men pay the price for acting as Humbert does in the novel. They go to jail. 
They're ostracized. There's no winking in our world. We recognize power and we recognize the abuse of power. We don't call it love when it's a discrepancy like this. We call it pedophilia. We call it rape. We are unflinching in life. And that gives us as much to think about as ever. What does that mean for Lolita? What does that mean for art? So, enter the next generation of Mintons. This is the daughter who is now the third generation of publishing Mintons. Her grandfather was a publisher, and her father, Walter, was the publisher of Lolita. And now she's here working in publishing, and she takes the torch when it comes to Lolita. Lolita is a fixture by now. Millions of people have read it. It is, as she says, indelible, shocking, but also indelible. It's impossible to imagine 20th century literature without it. But it's also impossible to imagine 21st century literature or literary criticism or just cultural criticism without trying to assess how we're supposed to consider Lolita in today's age. There is no single right answer. There are questions and there are approaches and there are facets to consider. Jenny Minton Quigley has come up with the solution to this. Not a book that sets out a single answer, but one that explores the questions. 30 different writers, Stacey Schiff, Ian Frazier, Erica Sanchez, Roxanne Gay, Emily Mortimer, and many others. Sarah Weinman, Laura Lipman, Alexander Chi, Robin Given, Susan Choi, Jim Shepard, Bindu Bansanath. It starts with an introduction by Jenny herself, who talks about her history with the book, which for her is a family history as well as a publication history as well as a literary history. And then we start hearing the essays on Lolita. We start examining Lolita from all different angles, as if it's a jewel in a museum that we're permitted to circle around, seeing it with all different pairs of eyes in all different lights. So, headed to the museum. <laughs> Let's take a break and come back with our guide. Jenny Minton Quigley, after this. Okay, joining me now is Jenny Minton Quigley, editor of Lolita in the Afterlife on Beauty, Risk, and Reckoning with the Most Indelible and Shocking Novel of the 20th Century. Jenny Minton Quigley, I hope I pronounced that correctly. Welcome to the History of Literature podcast. Yeah, that was great. Good, okay. <laughs> so, nice to meet you. So I wanted to start with the book's dedication which says, dedicated to my marvelous mother, Marion Minton, and in memory of my father, Walter J. Minton, who was to me Robert Duvall in The Great Santini, Pa from Little House on the Prairie, which I loved, Jack Nicholson in Just About Everything, I also love that, and the valiant publisher of Lolita in America. It's a beautiful dedication, and it made me want to know more about your family's history with this book, Lolita. So let's start with your father. Who was he, and how did he become the publisher of Lolita in America? Uh, my father was Walter Minton, and he became the publisher of Lolita. He was the son of Melville Minton, who was a fisherman's son in Red Bank, New Jersey. Mm. He left home at age 15. He took the ferry from Red Bank to New York, and he had big plans for an interview at Standard Oil, which was um, on Wall Street, but he took the wrong ferry, or he got off at the wrong stop, actually, and he ended up in Midtown, mm. went into Scribner's books um, and landed a job in the stock room. 
Mm-hmm. And over the years, you know, 15 year old boy, no, no formal education. And over the years worked his way up and he ended up, he moved over to Putnam's and ended up being able to acquire Putnam uh, for a song. It was almost in bankruptcy when George Putnam, the owner at the time, left the company to go find his wife, Amelia Earhart. Oh, wow. Disappeared. So Jeez. my family, yeah, my family loves the Amelia, Amelia Earhart connection. <laughs> but so my... <laughs> So my dad, we're probably the only people who are, um, our fortunes changed when Amelia Earhart disappeared. Yeah. My dad, he, when he graduated from college, went to work for his father at Putnam's and then very young, my grandfather had a stroke and died and Mm. Walter took over the helm of the publishing company. Right. And he published Lolita in 1958. And one of the things I was struck by was this seems to be kind of before the the rise of literary agents and your father seems to have had a lot of direct contact with Nabokov. Was this sort of a highlight for him? And, and it almost seems like it was a big part of his life. Yes. That's what, what he loved about publishing. He, he used to lament uh, the ascendancy of agents, literary agents, because he thought they took all the fun out of publishing. Mm-hmm. He loved his relationships with authors and he, especially in those days would, would, cultivate you you'd stick with an author for his or her whole career ups yeah. and downs and right. there wasn't quite as much jumping around yeah like when you mentioned scribner's i immediately thought of fitzgerald and it was like he was a scribner's author yes exactly yeah exactly i went to the new york public library twice and read all the correspondence between Nabokov and and walter and it was just you know Stacks and stacks and stacks mm. of, of letters. They they must have written each other almost every day. Some were, some were contracts, some were some were editorial, but never suggestions that Nabokov took. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know it, it just um the, the the amount of communication between writers and and editors and publishers in, in those days was it's it's unbelievable. Yeah. So you put the adjective valiant in in front of the word publisher for the reference to publishing Lolita. Let's put some context or, or sorry, context around that for the listeners. Nabokov had completed the book in 1954, but then it kept getting rejected by publishers. So what was what where were we exactly in terms of censorship and the risk of prison and and what a book like Lolita meant for a potential publisher? Right. So, so it was the Eisenhower era. It was the end of McCarthyism and the publishers were very nervous. Even a few editors who loved Lolita were very nervous that they would be prosecuted for, for publishing it. There mm. was a editor at Viking Press who said, we'll all land in jail. Mm. So Walter that sort of just fueled his desire to publish it, I think. I, I think he loved uh, fighting censorship. I think he loved taking risks. Right. Okay. So let's talk about you. And why don't we start with, I want to ask about your decision to enter publishing. But first, I wanted to ask uh, when you first heard about the book and when you first read it. I first read the book uh, my freshman year at Williams College with Professor Jim Shepard, who mm. actually is a contributor to the book. Yeah, yeah. contributed. And I, like many of the contributors um, who write pieces in the anthology, I, I remember romanticizing it 
I, I think I aged Lolita up in my mind. I, I, I was 18 and I, I sort of thought she was a teenager too, even though it, it, it's clear on my rereading recently that she's 12. Yeah. J- Jim Shepard, he, he sort of took the, he diffused the power of, of, of Humbert's voice by making it ridiculous. He mm. made him sound like a, you know, like a sort of Count Dracula. Yeah, right. And, and so we would laugh and laugh in, in, in class and, I think I think I sort of thought it was romantic. Yeah, right. Oh, interesting. Uh, which we'll get into all of those different themes uh, that you mentioned. I want to remind listeners, or maybe the ones who haven't yet heard this, we actually had Jim Shepard on the show, and he chose as two of his books, uh, Lolita was one and Dracula was the other. So the uh, comparison of <laughs> Humbert Humbert and, and Dracula, I'm not sure we... <laughs> I'm not sure we got into that, but he definitely impressed upon us, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, the humor and how that can serve to undermine Humbert Humbert and, and some of sort of the unsavory characteristics of him. Yes. At what point did you decide you were going to follow your father's footsteps in publishing? Was that something you always had in mind? Um, no, I think I think I, I think I'm one of those people who is always just in the moment I'm in. Mm-hmm. And so in college, I don't think I thought for two seconds about what I was going to do after. I had read just about every book I, since I, I could, had learned to read. I just devoured books. Yeah. And my father, Walter, said to me as I was graduating and thinking my life was over instead of just starting, he said, why don't you sign up for the Radcliffe Publishing course, uh, which is now the Columbia Publishing course in New York. Mm-hmm. But it's a six-week course where you just learn about all different aspects of books and magazine publishing. And I signed up for that. And then I took my first job, which was at Dell Publishing, working for an editor who published the Outlander series, the Diana Gabaldon. Oh, book. right. Yep. Romances and mysteries. And I just loved it. I loved it from the from the second I started. Yeah. When you were reading Lolita, were your parents aware that you were reading it? Oh, in college. Yeah. You know, I never I never told anyone. I never told anyone that I that I that my father published Lolita. I had read Pale Fire in high school. I never told anyone that he had yeah. published that too. And then I finally confessed it to Jim Shepard yeah. one day after class. And it, and it was, it was like a <laughs> confession, Jack, you know, yeah, I don't know right. why I was so embarrassed about it, but. Right. Oh, that's interesting. So your parents it's weren't, it's sort of secret. Uh, they weren't, I, I mean, I'm interested because it's such a, and that's one of the things that your book made clear to me or in the introduction made clear to me is we kind of have this general view that back in the in the 50s, America was sort of too prudish. The art was overlooked and it was lumped in with sort of an obscenity kind of take on on Lolita. And the idea then, uh, I guess, is is that today the distaste for it is more about sort of a Me Too objection to it. I'm speaking kind of broad strokes here. But one of the things I was struck by was you pointed out that Catherine White, who I think a lot of people will know as the wife of E.B. White and herself, uh, a strong figure in publishing, she had basically a modern day view of it back then as well, that this was, you know, something people were, they thought about their daughters and they thought about the the preteen age of, of Dolly and they had concerns about what this book meant and, and who should be reading it. And all of that was present right at the beginning. Well, right. That's why she rejected it, I think, for The New Yorker. 
Mm. And mm-hmm. because she kept thinking about her daughters and, and granddaughters, I think even she said. And then and then the other person, um, the other person who was on to it from the start was Vera Nabokov. Mm. And mm-hmm. Stacey Schiff in her piece illuminates how from the very start, and I read it for myself in her diary in the in the library, from the very start she's saying Everyone is missing the point. No one cares about this poor girl, Lolita. Because people were saying, uh, reviewers were saying she was obnoxious. She was was hard to take. She was immature. Mm. You know, she got beat up as a character. Right. Which, which in in a modern lens, it's just, it's almost impossible to read it that way. (laughs) Yeah, right, Um, right. But, but but they were two of, of the few. And remember, publishing back then in the 50s, most of the editors were men. Yeah, right. So so it's not that surprising that they, that they were the two who noticed from the start. When I first read Lolita, I think, uh, and we're, it's so hard to talk about this without getting into the issues, but it, it when I first read Lolita, I remember feeling like, I think there's a point where Humbert Humbert says something like, reader, she was not even a virgin, or I was not her first, or something like that. And and I remember thinking, oh, well, he's kind of trying to excuse himself with this, isn't he? But I, it does feel like that's a very manipulative way yep. of trying to turn this into something other than what it is, which is a, a statutory rape, basically. Yeah. I, I just thought of the exact same word as you were talking, manipulative. At the same time, I think it raises such interesting questions, and it's just a fascinating book. It's it's a fascinating piece of literary history. It's just, there's no other book that really stands in the same position, and your book really does a wonderful job of exploring this by coming at it from all of these different angles, from all of these these amazing writers. And I want to kind of make clear for the listeners that I'm not planning to try to get to one specific answer, either myself or or asking you and trying to pin you down, down on that. But I'd rather just sort of celebrate what the book does, which is all of the questions that people have raised and all of the different approaches from the writers that you were able to assemble here. And, and they all deal with the complexities of it, and they're all aware of the opposing views, and they try to wrestle with their own feelings about Lolita maybe their feelings that they have now, maybe the the ones that they first had and, and how it changes over time and and changes as they grow older and uh, as their awareness, their social awareness has changed. And, and I just want to kind of make that clear that we're not trying to uh, come down on any particular viewpoint here, but I want to ask you about all of the, the different questions. So let's start with that. How did you come up with this contributor list? So, well, well, even back, backing up to that, you know, the, the book never lands on one answer. Right. You know, Susan Choi calls it a moral hazard and Emily Mortimer says it transcends morality. Yeah. So, so I, I don't think, <laughs> right. I, I don't think um, there's a sort of conclu- conclusive answer, you know, even after reading the book. Yeah. Which and- is terrific. I didn't want that. And I certainly didn't want everybody um, writing the same thing. Right. Which gets to your next question, which is, um, I was worried with, with a book of, you know, all essays about the same novel, I, I was worried that they would start to sound too much alike. Right. And so from the very start, um, I tried to think of topics 
that would be um, fun to explore yeah. or, you know, or interesting or of the moment to explore about Lolita. And then to think of writers who, who might be right for that. Uh, my agent, Jen Marshall, helped me. Stacy Schiff helped me. Stacy Schiff said, oh, we have to have an on the road piece. You know, Lolita really is and on the road yeah, novel, they right. travel across America. And, yeah. and, and I think she was even the one who came up with Ian Fraser. So we, you know, mm. I called Ian Fraser and he wrote the most brilliant piece, you know, and he's yeah. a Nabokov aficionado. He, he, um, he wrote about Nabokov in St. Petersburg and, you know, just tracked him every place he'd been on the road. It, it, amazing piece. Um, Lolita fashion. There's a whole subculture of Lolita fashion, mm. um, this sort of Japanese um, subculture of these very innocent, young-looking girls, but clothes. Yeah. Um, and then I think Jen Marshall thought, how about Robin Given? And she wrote just this amazing piece about the fashion, and also about how she, as a young black girl, never responded to it. You know, it was like nothing about her. <laughs> Right. So that was that was really interesting. Then other contributors it, it came up with their own ideas. Yeah. Tom, Tom Bissell wanted to write about the movies. Yeah, right. I was going to say that that the movies are, you know, you you could have they could be their own separate book almost. Um, I was glad to see that they were discussed here. Uh, Laura Lipman was he, a really. He did uh, write a book. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, he wrote a book. <laughs> I had to cut it down. <laughs> and uh, you know, like sixty pages. Laura Lipman was a perfect choice. She's uh, a crime writer we've talked about here uh, a few times, I think, on the podcast. And she writes kind of about the detective story in the book, which often gets overlooked. That That's an element of what's going on here. And, and she kind of analyzes how successful it is and how that functions within the narrative. What was so amazing about the Laura Lipman piece is that I asked her because I love her as a mystery writer. I, I asked her to write about the, the mystery of, you know, at the heart of, of the novel. But what I hadn't known was that she had studied Lolita with Alfred Apple at mm. Northwestern. Yeah. And so um, not only did she sort of, does she blow up sort of this impossible mystery that Nabokov con constructed, but she also blows up some of those clues and notes that Apple taught them as fact and 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 have not survived the te the test of time yeah and others andre debuse the third was reading the book for the first time which was an interesting take on it uh, i think a lot of people in the literary world probably encounter it when they're uh you know in their teens or, or 20s and then maybe return to it um, but i thought that was an interesting take that he was reading it for the first time there's just uh so many different ones emily mortimer is she's got these really interesting intersections with it, and her essay is is kind of incredible. It's kind of amazing. She was an actress in The Bookshop, which is the Penelope Fitzgerald novel about uh, a woman who tries to sell Lolita, opens up a bookstore, and is selling Lolita. She Emily Mortimer was in that film, and she was also the daughter of uh, John Mortimer, who's people might know as the author of Rumpole of the Bailey and himself a, a London barrister. Uh, I thought she had a really interesting angle on the book as well. Uh, I, you know, her piece came in kind of late, not late as in past the due date, just late in the sequence of pieces coming in. Mm. It is so brave. It actually is valiant. It reminds me of Walter. 
you know, there's people in this, in the world who are just brave and I'm, I'm really not one of them, but, but she is, and she came down and just said, you know, this is a brilliant piece of art. This is a brilliant piece of literature. We sympathize, the Bokoff makes us sympathize with a pedophile and a rapist and a monster. And I think her father who, who prosecuted, who, um, who defended murderers, John Mortimer defended murderers sort of taught her that everyone has some humanity inside them. And I think what a lot of people um, either aren't feeling or don't want to say that this is that, that he, that Nabokov creates sympathy for Humbert and that this is a a masterpiece, you know, she, she came out and so boldly said, yeah, which was awesome. Yeah. Um, Andre Debus, I love that, that Andre Debus was, was, was reading it for the first time. I, what I, what I like about how the book turned out is there's some, there's some, um, Nabokov aficionados. There are some people who, you know, Lolita has been in a really big part of their writing life and their lives. And then there are other people who are sort of would call themselves, I guess, Nabokov outsiders, you know, who, who don't, it's, it's not a, they're coming to it either for the first time or certainly aren't experts. And, and I sort of like that balance. Yeah, right. I kind of felt like, uh, and I may have talked about this with Jim Shepard as well, it it always, that's one of the things that stands out to me with the book. A lot of people will say, well, the language is so beautiful, it redeems any unsavory aspects of it. And it's not like I want to censor the book or anything like that. But I still sort of feel like, well, that doesn't fully answer the question for me because it doesn't really capture the experience I had when I was reading it. And the thing that I could compare it with was the show Breaking Bad, which is maybe my favorite television show of all time. Oh, no and, one said that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, Walt. yeah, the feeling and, and just knowing that Vince Gilligan, you know, he had this idea. He was going to turn this guy from Mr. Chips into Scarface and he couldn't believe and he and the writers would just sit in the writer's room baffled because they couldn't believe that the public hadn't turned on Walt. And in fact, he was still a hero. And they were like, what is it going to take? We've already made him, you know, we've made him a murderer. Now we've made him like someone who has he's murdering for fun and and he's killing a kid and he's, you know, and like everything they could think of that would make him get worse and worse they thought, well, this is really going to do it. You know, this is going to be the end. People are going to hate Walt now. And instead, he just became more and more of a folk hero. And to me, that was the most fascinating thing about watching the show is you find yourself rooting for Walt. And then you find yourself asking yourself, why do I want this guy to succeed? He's horrible. He's a monster. He should be the villain. And yet, is it is it the way that art, you know, is it appealing to something in me, like I want to be free and get away with something? Or is it just the way that art kind of, because he's the protagonist of the show and because you want to you want to root for the guy that the show is about? And, and that's kind of how I felt like when I was reading Lolita is, why am I not turning on Humbert? And in fact, I even find like I want him to... Uh, continue to do some of these awful things, is it because he's such a fun narrator and he's his sense of humor is here and because I'm enjoying the prose? And why is this having this effect on me? What is my response really about? So I guess, first of all, I would say, I wish I had asked you to write yeah. an essay. <laughs> 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 that would be really 
that'll be, the, <laughs> that'll be the second edition. Uh, yeah, second <laughs> well, the edition, sequel. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, and then the second thing I, I, I would say is I, what, what you're saying, I think, is what Emily, Emily Mortimer would say. It is certainly not what, what every contribu- contributor said said and um i it's not the way they're teaching it you know i sat in on a high school ap english class in my town last year and the kids were the students were so paranoid um they had been taught that that humbert was such an unreliable narrator that Mm. they were being so manipulated on every page that that you got to the scene on the hill where, you know, Humbert has remorse. Finally, he hears the concord of, of voices coming up the hill, right? The sound of children playing and he realizes that it's his fault. Olita's voice isn't amongst them. Yeah. And that's the point where I cried, where, you know, and, and, and it was like nothing to them. Yeah. And, and I did think, I wonder why they're reading it then. And that's the question that I don't have an answer to whether they should still be or not. Right. I, I really, some days I think yes, some days I think no, but, but, but if we're going to be so, um, if, if we're going to be so, um, paranoid of the, of the, of his character and so unwilling to in, engage with him, then I don't know if, I mean, I guess you could read it just for the language. Yeah. But, I, I'm not sure you need to read it in school. Right. But the, the, yeah, exactly. And the, the thought experiment, I had here was, well, what if this was just about a guy who was driving across America and and catching butterflies and it was written with this prose? I do think it would be still kind of an amazing work of art, uh, but I don't think it would be anywhere near Lolita. You know, I, I don't think it's just the prose that makes it an amazing work of literature. There's more to it than that. Well, it's probably just that what you're saying too, right? That amazing ability that that Nabokov had that you do get inside the mind of this person and have and have of this monster. Yeah. And and the kid said, you know, the one thing that Walt didn't do in Breaking Bad is rape someone. Wow. Because the kid said, the kid said, you know, we we could have sympathized with a murderer. We could have sympathized. They just, it, you know, it, the rapist and the rape of a child. Yeah. Um, right, they, right. They didn't have Walt do that. Yeah, that is really the taboo, and and Nabokov goes right at it. Yep. Uh, do you get the sense that a lot of people take the attitude of, well, I can read it, but I'm worried about other people reading it, reading Lolita? So, so like who? Uh, well, Vera like, herself worried about young girls reading it. Yeah. She thought she didn't think that kids should read it. I just was wondering if, if a lot of people, sometimes I get the sense that people are saying, well, yes, it's art and I, I can read it and, and analyze it on that level, but I don't think it should be taught in schools or I don't think it should be, uh, I, I, I think other people are probably misreading it and reading it for the wrong reasons and reading it for the salaciousness, but they're probably not appreciating it the way I do the, you know, coming at it from the point of view I do. I just was wondering if, if you ever had that sense, sometimes that kind of grates on me a little bit that some people seem to feel like they can understand it, but the rest of the world is going to not appreciate the, the complexity in the way that they would. Absolutely. And, and one thing I found in my research, um, Jack, was that every 10 years, there's yeah. some piece in the New York Times or, you know, someone comes along and says that everyone's been misreading Lolita. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
talk a little bit more about some of the contributors. I was wondering if uh, if anyone was breaking any news here. I know a lot of people were, were they're such scholars of Nabokov and of this book and and are they uh, can they expect to to hear some little known facts and some uh, was there any original research that you could point to from any of the authors? Oh yes, let me just think. T- Tom Bissell, mm-hmm. Tom Tom Bissell piece on the film. Uh, you know, maybe everybody knows that the Stanley Kubrick movie uh, for which Nabokov is credited for writing the screenplay, and I actually had to clear permissions um, with the estate. You know, to to run a, a couple of quotes from the screenplay that that Tom included, but the actual movie with Sue Lyon and 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 Peter Sellers does not the entire movie doesn't have a single line that Nabokov wrote. Oh, wow! <laughs> not one single one of his lines made it into the movie, and yet he's credited on the screenplay. <laughs> Things like that, <laughs> right? <laughs> and 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 um, very Vanity Fair style sort of Tom recreates Nabokov working on this movie. You know, going to Hollywood and. Oh, yeah. um, it, it's terrific. It's amazing. Yeah. So I didn't know any of that. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people. I mean, Mary Gateskill had, had written about Lolita before, mm-hmm. and then she sort of um, comes at it very differently now. Yeah. So there's a lot of that. Lauren Graff, who, who I think became a writer because of Nabokov and, and Lolita, um, really takes takes a fresh look at herself and the book. Yeah. And so, how about um, um, how about a living story of Lolita in Iraq? Oh yeah, isn't she amazing, mm. Dana Sabi? Yeah, that was amazing. That one gave me chills. Well, mo- a lot of them did, but that one. <laughs> but but that just a girl still. It's okay for a twelve-year-old to be married off still. Yeah, right. And raped. Yeah. You know, and and right, and it's the and it's the daughter whose whose honor it, it's the daughter whose honor is ruined, not the rapist. Yeah, I think one of the areas that I am most interested, just from a, a literary history point of view, is Vera, because she's kind of come down to us as one of the literary saints, you know, one of the exemplar of uh, spousal support, and and that she typed his manuscripts and and took care of paying all the bills and made sure no one interrupted him and all of that, and she's sort of become this this figure of like the woman behind the man kind of thing. And we don't always hear what she thought that, you know, of the books and of the subject matter and and that kind of thing. And I was, I was glad to read the essays that were about her. Um, Yes. Like, like Stacey Schiff. Yeah. You know, yes, yes. She, she was the wife, right. The, the, and the muse and, um, but she, believed she 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 believed that Lolita was a masterpiece mm. yeah and and she believed you know that no one else could uh, uh, appreciate and that they would come to appreciate but she sort of even just as much as Nabokov thought thought people who didn't appreciate it were idiots you know she 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 got it and thought it was brilliant um she when I did did some research and read her diary, Jack. I think she should have been a novelist. Mm. You know, she yeah. had quite an imagination and quite a love of gossip. She chronicles the whole year of Lo- that Lolita is published. Um, Nabokov named her diary Hurricane Lolita. 
Yeah. And it's, it's, it's the story <laughs> of the whole publication, you know, so I got to read about Walter in there. Yeah. Um, and my father had just passed away. Oh. Um, and so that was so fun to, you know, see him. He, he boarded this DC three plane in the middle of a storm to, to, to fly up to Ithaca and he negotiated a contract. Um, yeah. the, 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 uh, Olympia Press edition had not only been banned in France, but it was um, that they had had a falling out. Nabokov and Gerodius, and and it was all over the the copyrights. Um, Nabokov couldn't get it back, and and my dad negotiated with both of them separately. And and um, it it just is so triumphant, you know. They they go to the Harvard Club and 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 launch this book with all the news press, and you could just feel the excitement of both Vera and my father. They yeah. were the two sort of business people. Yeah. Um, they were the ones who wrote back and forth to each other about the ads. Um, they wrote right. back and forth to each other about the quotes. You know, they they were more of the the publishers. I, I think she she loved that too. Yeah. And and he was writing and. And catching butterflies. And was there a little bit for you? I, my parents uh, were school teachers, and there was a, a moment I remember when they had sort of a, a reunion with all of their fellow teachers, and a lot of these people I knew as teachers, you know, and they were in their, I guess, forties at that point or something. And and this, it, they showed a film that someone had taken a home movie, and they were all in their twenties, and they were all you know, flirting and they were playing these kind of risque games. And I just sat there astonished thinking of this uh, history of, you know, this generation of people who came down to me as the distinguished, you know, graying uh, figures. Uh, there must have been some aspect of that when you were reading about Walter and the exploits that he and and that generation were having as they were kind of roaming through the New York publishing world, but there was a lot of, of gossip and affairs. And, uh, you know, it seems like your research must have, you must have kept coming across this almost as if these people in your life were like uh, characters in a novel themselves. Yeah, I wondered why. Um, I did I did start to wonder why we hadn't met Rosemary Ridgewell, why my dad hadn't yeah. taken us to visit <laughs> Rosemary Ridgewell. And for listeners who, who won't know, who might not know, um, she, she was the scout who found Lolita. She, she read, um, she read the Olympia press edition. I think when she was in France and brought it back to New York. Um, my father was having an affair with him, with her during, during this time. And she said to him, you have to read this book. And, and he read it, stayed up in, in her living room one night reading it. And, and the next day said, I, you know, I need to publish this but mm. the story her story and Sarah Weinman tells it yeah um, Sarah Weinman writes an essay in the book about it but her story how she was you know paid a finder a very legitimate finder's fee and then was just destroyed by the press jack you know they called her like a trying to remember they called her like a nymphette and they called her slithery 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 blithery latin girl uh. in, in time magazine and you know well, and she was like a she was a Copacabana showgirl. She was a Copacabana girl, but she was pretty smart. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> right? She was also very smart. And yeah. I don't know. Sarah, Sarah just um shows us another side of her, yep. which which I was very, you know, glad to glad to have done. And that's another perfect pairing of of an author and a topic, the Sarah Weinman piece, I thought. 
Oh, definitely. She had actually, that's the one piece, and she, she expanded on it for the book, but all the other pieces, her, her, that piece and Bindu, Bindu um, Bantanoff's piece are the two that had already been, she had put that up on Lit Hub, mm. and I called her. Mm-hmm. And um, Bindu Bansanath just on it. Right. Just before we leave that, Bindu Bansanath is called How Lolita Freed Me from My Own Humbert. And and that one and um, Kate Elizabeth Russell on the Internet fan club that she was in growing up mm-hmm. um, for Lolita. Those two sort of show a side that I had never considered before that reading Lolita could be power, you know, powerful to young girls just to know that they weren't alone. Yeah. Right. Uh, do you think that today, is it fair to say we're we're too heavy-handed in applying our cultural sensitivities to the book? Do, is Lolita in danger? I know Caitlin Flanagan had said maybe lo- only Lolita is going to survive the Me Too movement. Um, do you think that there's kind of a feeling that Lolita is somehow at risk of... Uh, of a cultural moment that might seek to erase it? I I would say yes, except that two things. One, every single contributor, uh, pretty much every single contributor I asked to write about Lolita said yes. And that's why it's a 400 plus page book. Everybody wanted to talk about Lolita. So I think that I don't, you know, I can't see that moment disappearing anytime soon. It's been a, a hot button for since it came out. And and then the second thing I would say to that is that every time I start to think that and then I open the book and then it's two hours later and I, mm. you know, when, when you're yeah. actually reading that book, it, it, however you judge it, it's just, I can't imagine it not existing. It is so powerful. Yeah, right. As long as it delivers an experience that's like no other, uh, it seems like it will have a place in literature. Right. Right. And but but, you know, what my father was sort of always like what he just always said again and again. And so I guess what he would want his message to be was that he published Lolita because he knew he could sell that book. And Mm. and the literati at the gates were just not interested in that. That's a I guess a commercial mindset, you know, but but he was brave enough to, to take that risk. To, to do it. And they weren't even the ones who could love it and appreciate every page. And who's to say he didn't? That's just not what he talked about. What he talked about is he was a publisher and he bought the book because he knew he could sell it. And I think what, what makes me nervous about cancel culture is when it cancels personalities because he didn't care what people thought about him. Yeah. He didn't. He just took, he was a risk taker, right? There's, there's like my grandfather was the gentleman publisher. You know, there's all different kinds of people, but for a culture, an artistic culture to really thrive, I think you also need the rebel risk taker. And and I just worry that, you know, I I just worry a little bit with the cancel culture that that we're going to not we're going to silence those people that that those people might get knocked out. Mm, Right. More than more than Lolita itself. It's it, it, you know, I think Lolita's here, but but the next book. Right. Well, uh, if it's as good, hopefully it, it uh, succeeds as, as long and as uh, widespread as Lolita has. I want to say... If someone will publish it, right? Yeah, If, if someone will true. publish it. Yeah. Dan, you know, a lot of people, Dan Franklin and Jonathan Cape, a, a lot of people, Sonny Metet, Knopf was, a, was very much a risk taker. Mm-hmm. But people today would, uh, people in your book say, I'm not sure it gets published today. Right. Yeah. 
I want it. This is going to sound like I am uh, trying to flatter the guest. Um, so I guess I'll uh, confess to that at the start. <laughs> I don't know how to avoid it. But I do think that your book helps to provide some context around Lolita that hopefully will help keep it uh, on people's shelves and, and on people's nightstands that your book is a reminder that people can be good readers and be very thoughtful about very difficult and uh, sometimes unpalatable questions. That this, that it's not just that this is literature that everyone, you know, is, is, is missing how secretly evil it is, but that this is literature that readers are responding to in a very complex way. I love that. I, I, that's exactly what I hope it does. And and that it's a compendium also for hopefully when kids are or students are still reading it in school, that, that would be terrific because what I like most about it is that there's no one way to read it, right? There's, there's yeah. no one judgment, um, but there's a, it, you know, it, it certainly gives us a lot to talk about and, and talking about books. That's what your show is all about, right? Mm. Talk, talking about books is, is one of the best things we can do, I think. Yeah, we will keep plugging away. So Jenny Minton Quigley, editor of Lolita in the Afterlife on Beauty, Risk, and Reckoning with the most indelible and shocking novel of the 20th century. Thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Jack. I'm such a fan of the podcast. Okay, there we go. Lolita. With this new book in hand, go read the novel if it's been a while and then take a deep breath and read this amazing collection of voices who are going to tell you all about their reading of the novel. You will learn from it and you will argue with it and you will admire it and you will appreciate just what a thoughtful world our little world of literature is when you come right down to it. That's what's great about being in this club, people. And you are in the club, and I am in it too. It's open to everyone who reads great books and thinks about them and cares about them. So we all qualify. That's what's great about this club of ours. We're not the richest or the most famous people in the world, but we're the best. <laughs> I'm joking, but only half joking. You know I can't consider myself the best when I'm also convinced I'm the worst. That doesn't work. But when you read these essays, you might find yourself thinking, as I did, what a thoughtful group of people this is. We're doing okay. We are doing okay. And we can approach even the most challenging issues with grace and gratitude and good ideas. We're lucky to have Nabokov, and he is lucky to have us too. My thanks to Jenny Minton Quigley. Speaking of fortunate to have, we're fortunate to have her here today. And of course, to all the contributors to this book, I'm thankful for them as well. I'm thankful for this book. <laughs> Should have been one of our November shows. Could have fit right in with Thanksgiving. Okay, here we go. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
the Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.